You can turn over in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 10. We've been going through the Gospel of Matthew, and now we're back in it. We have uh, two more weeks dealing with these guys, just who were these guys. And uh, this morning we'll be looking at Matthew, Thomas, and possibly James, if we have a little time there at the end. But I just want to read the first uh, part of Matthew for us so it's kind of fresh in our minds. And uh, you can follow along in your Bibles. Matthew chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. And when he had called his 12 disciples to him, he gave them power over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease. Now the names of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus, Labius, whose surname was Thaddeus, Simon, the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. One thing we've been seeing as we've been going through this, and I'd encourage you if you haven't um, heard the previous messages on these guys uh, to get them, and they're back there on the, on the Internet. But God is in the business of using all kinds of people. We see that clearly throughout Scripture. Last time we looked at the uh, Philip and Bartholomew, we saw that God uses people who are unqualified. And that would include all of us because we're all unqualified. None of us have any qualifications before God whatsoever. The Bible says, as a matter of fact, it describes mankind as uh, having no righteousness of his own. The Bible said that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, no, not one. That includes me, that includes you, that includes the entirety of creation as we know it. That's what the Bible says. And yet, we saw how God took these unqualified men and did amazing things with them. Amazing things. He literally turned the world upside down as they knew it in that time. But God can take very few and do a lot with it. Isn't that right? That's right. That's what God's all about. You think in the Old Testament, you think of somebody like Shamgar, who was a judge in Israel. One day he picks up an ox goad, who's basically a a sharpened stick used to prod oxen along, and he's able to kill 600 enemy of the enemy with this simple little stick. One man. Amazing. And then you think of other people. You think of folks like uh, Gideon, who was ready to do battle with the Midianites in the Old Testament. And he had his army together, and he had 32,000 men. That's a pretty good army, right? Well, God said, that's too many. (laughs) As you read the story, basically, God whittles his army down to 300 men. And then he says, now you're ready to go do battle. That doesn't make sense in our minds. That doesn't make logical sense. But in Judges, we find out basically what happened. It said the enemies were like grasshoppers. Just multitude of them. And their camels were without number. And yet God somehow took those 300 men of Gideon. And you know what? They didn't even have to do anything. All they did was make some noise, the Bible says. And God just confused the enemy. And they had the victory. It's amazing what God can do with so few in his hand when it's yielded to him. See, God is not restrained by how many people there are or how many or how lack of people there are. It doesn't matter to him. I mean, so many times today, 
I mean, if you think of how churches are started a lot of times, you know, they have to have what they call kind of a core group of people, and they have this big promotion thing, and then, you know, usually they, they, they launch it on Easter Sunday, and they'll tell you in the history of their churches, read through, yeah, we launched it, and the first Sunday we had 300 people, or we had this many people, as if that means something. See, to God, that doesn't mean anything. God can use two people. He can use one person if that person is fully yielded to him. Now, in Matthew 10, we're reminded that, once again, God uses unique people, people like you and I. He literally turned the world upside down. Can you imagine a time when there was a time in history when there was no church? There was no church. There was nobody coming on Sundays to worship God. They did, knew very little of salvation. There was no organization, there was no organism called the church at this time. And yet Jesus chose these 12, one of whom was a traitor, to start, to leave kind of a legacy because he was going to be gone from the scene and he needed these guys to kind of get everything going. And they extended the kingdom of God around the world. Just 12 guys because of their devotion, because of their obedience, because of their courage, because of their faith, and mostly because they accomplished what God told them to do. See, we're a product of their work. We're a product of these 12 guys and what they set up. That's why we're here today. I mean, we're right back kind of where we started this whole series. What kind of people does God use? Does he use only those who are of saintly stature? <laughs> I think as we've looked at these individuals, we've seen that he uses common people like you and I. God's in the business of accepting unqualified people to do his work because nobody's qualified, as I just said. The Lord used people like Peter who takes charge and he plans everything out and just commands people around, and yet he makes the the most stupidest blunders. He uses people like Andrew, we saw, who's humble, gentle, kind of inconspicuous in the shadows, and yet quietly bringing people to Christ faithfully. He used people like James, who was zealous and passionate, kind of over the top, as well as his brother, He's tender and loving, John. He used people like Philip who were skeptical. They were slow to believe. They were weak-faithed. And he even used people like Nathaniel Bartholomew who was full of faith, believed God could do anything, and yet his life was tainted by the sin of prejudice. Remember his statement, what good can come out of that town? He had a built-in prejudice. We're going to meet these three other guys this morning, hopefully. First one, Matthew. I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on Matthew because we went through him when we went over him a little bit when we went through chapter 9 of Matthew. But we'll take him first because we've already kind of seen some of him. Matthew's mentioned in every list of the apostles, and he's always in the same group. He's always in the second group. But you know what? Nothing is ever said about this guy. Nothing is ever said about Matthew except one little thing. Just one little thing. 
And in Matthew chapter 9, verse 9, here's what you find. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. And he arose and he followed him. And then it's kind of interesting because Matthew, who wrote this gospel that we're studying, in verse 3 of chapter 10, when he mentions himself in the list, look at what he does. He says, Matthew, what's he say? The tax collector. It's kind of interesting that none of the other apostles have their career attached to their name. I mean, there were fishermen. Different, probably different backgrounds. Most of them are fishermen, but you don't read, you know, Peter, a fisherman. You don't read that. But Matthew felt a need to put that in there. He was describing himself, Matthew, the tax collector. Why in the world you would put that in there, I don't know. Because it doesn't make human logical sense. That's like having a former life and, and having been arrested for all sorts of hideous crimes. And then in your biography, you're right, yeah, uh, Steve Converse, you know, I used to be a felon. As a matter of fact, I, when I go on and list all the horrible things that I did, you wouldn't do that. That doesn't make logical sense. You would want to keep that stuff in the background. You would want people not to judge you on your, your background, but on what you are now. And yet Matthew doesn't do that. I mean, a tax collector still is, but back then was one of the most hated people in society. I mean, it wasn't something to be proud of, to be a tax collector. They were considered publicans. I mean, you wonder why Matthew even comments about himself there in, in verse 9 of chapter 9. Why he even brings it up. And I think the reason he does is not to say, oh, look at my past, look at how bad I was. No, he's doing it in the context of the forgiveness of sin. Here you just had the paralytic forgiven, and Matthew wants people to understand that God forgives sin. And some people in that day and age were saying, yeah, but how bad a sin can he actually forgive? And Matthew said, he forgave me. Look at me, I was a tax collector. I'm the bottom rung. I'm as down as far as you can go. And Matthew shows his genuine humility, his sense of sinful unworthiness when he puts that in there. He wants people to understand that God's forgiveness doesn't have boundaries. That's important for us to understand. Sometimes we look at people outside the church and we look at their background and we look at some of the things they, they've done and we say, oh, there's no hope for that person. Yes, there is. There's always hope in Christ. But it's interesting because Matthew never speaks. You never really have a quote from him at all. He never asks the question. He never makes a comment. He never appears in an incident with Jesus and as some of the other guys do. He's absolutely faceless and voiceless through the entire narrative of the Gospels. That's amazing to me. And I think that it was his humility that kept him back, kind of back in the shadows a little bit. His overwhelming sense of sinfulness. I mean, he was so overwrought by the sin in his life that once he was actually forgiven, grace was so super abundant to him that he felt unworthy even to speak a word about it. 
So he's this silent man until Christ transforms him and tells him to pick up a pen and entrust him to write 28 chapters in the New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew, that introduces the King of Kings and Lord of Lords to everybody. Matthew was a traitor. Matthew was an extortioner. Matthew was a robber. He was a thief. He was greedy just by his profession that made him that way. He was an outcast. I mean, what he did was basically he aligned himself as a Jew with the, with the Roman government, and then he ripped off his own people through taxation. And there was different kinds of publicans that we talked about before. And it's, it's, it's interesting that he was the worst of the worst. He was the bottom of the barrel. There was the publican who kind of just taxed everybody generally, the goodbye, and then there was the, the Mokis. And, and the, 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 the Mokis was, was a guy who, who taxed your, your, um, how many legs you had on your donkey, you know, how many paddles you had in your boat, all sorts of things. They would just create tax because that's how they made money for themselves and for Rome. Poll taxes, all sorts of things. And he was over a group of people who would actually go out into the street called Little Mocus, and they would sit at the tax booth, and they were the people who put their face to their profession for this guy who kind of ruled and reigned over him. Well, that's what Matthew was. He wasn't somebody who just oversaw a bunch of them. He was the guy that actually went out on the street among his own brothers and sisters in his faith and ripped them off. So he was hated. He had no friends at all, unless they were other tax tax. Uh, collectors or prostitutes. I mean, the bottom rung, that's who his friends were. The Talmud says that it is righteous to lie and deceive a tax collector. (laughs) Now, make sure you understand, that's the Talmud. It's not the Bible. Okay, so I'm not saying, you you know, the next time you file your Talmud, Steve says it's in the Bible, don't lie to it. No, 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 Don't, don't hang that on my hook, okay? The Talmud was the oral law of the Jewish faith. They just kind of said that they're so despicable, you can even lie to them. No tax collector was ever permitted to testify in court because they were known to be such liars. Nobody would trust them. They took bribes. They could never enter the synagogue to worship. That's why in Luke 18, when we see the publican who's humble before God, his heart broken, it says that he's standing afar off. He couldn't go to the synagogue to worship. He had to stand off in the shadows, and it says he beat his breast, and he said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. See, he was desperate for God's touch. That's where Matthew was. And that's where anybody needs to be when they truly, honestly come to Christ. See, we have a lot of people that make a profession about Christ. Oh, yeah, I love Jesus. Oh, yeah, you know, I read the Bible. Oh, yeah, I pray. I do all these things. The Bible says a little later on in the gospel of, uh, or earlier on in, in Matthew, it says that, you know what, there's going to be people that do a lot of good things and stand before God one day and say, Lord, Lord, haven't we cast out demons? Haven't we healed the sick? Haven't we done this? Haven't we done that? And he's going to turn to them and say, you know what, pal, I never knew you. Be gone. And they'll be cast into utter hell, utter darkness. For eternity. See, it's so easy. The enemy is not stupid. 
The enemy wants us to think that when we do certain things or we act a certain way, that that makes us okay with God. And that's not the way it is. See, we have to stop and we have to look at our hearts And we have to come before a holy God and realize that our hearts are dark. Our hearts are stained with sin, the Bible says. And that we need to be desperate before a holy God. We need to cry out to him and say, God, save me. There's no other way for me to be saved. There's a song we sing once in a while called Desperate for You. It's it's called The Air I Breathe, Breathe. And it says this. For a while, I had a hard time with this song. I'm thinking, what does this song mean? It says, this is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. Your holy presence living in me. This is my daily bread. This is my daily bread. Your very word spoken to me. And then the chorus says this, and I'm, I'm desperate for you. And I, I'm, I'm lost without you. See, that's the point where someone has to come before salvation is activated in their life. If you think for a second that somehow you're saving yourself, you're trusting in your own good works, you're trusting in trying to clean up your act, you know, you used to hang around with these people, you used to do these things, you're not going to do that anymore because now you're, quote, going to church, so you've got to act a certain way, you've got to do... That's silly. God sees right through that to your dark, stain-filled heart, and he says, you know what? You need to come before me out of desperation. See, the, the problem with our churches today is somehow we think that it's our right to be saved, that God needs to save us. It's, it's his duty to save us. You know, God would be totally justified in sending every one of us to hell forever because of our sin. Outside of Christ, that's a just act. So anything outside of hell, any grace we receive from God, trust me, it's just that. It's a gift. It's not something we deserve. Because we're lost. We're lost in our own sinfulness And we need to cry out in desperation to God like Matthew did and say, God, save me. I mean, he couldn't even go and worship with his own people. He was the worst of the worst. And yet God saved him. He was just working there one day at the tax booth. And Jesus came up and said, you follow me. God did something in his heart. Because it wouldn't have been a logical decision for Matthew to do, to make. See, you've got to understand, when Matthew walked away from that tax booth, he walked away from it forever. You don't desert a post that the Roman government put you in charge of without some of replication down the road, repercussions down the road. So when he got up from that tax booth and he said, okay, you know what, Lord, I'll follow you. What if Jesus wouldn't have forgiven him? What if Jesus was a sham? What if in two weeks Jesus would have said, ah, just kidding, Matthew, sorry. You know, the other guys, what they do? They can go back to their stuff, right? They were fishermen. And we see in the Bible where when Jesus is off the scene, after he dies and all that, in John 21, they go back to fishing. Matthew couldn't. He couldn't go back to his profession. It was impossible. He utterly walked away from everything he knew to follow Christ. 
See, that's the kind of desperate act that's needed to save somebody. I mean, so many times we get people who are not believers and we start to tell them this jolly little story about four laws and how God loves them and has a wonderful plan for their life and all this. I mean, that may work sometimes, but I don't think that's the gospel that I read in the Bible. The Bible says that you've got to come to the end of yourselves. You've got to be desperate for God to save you. My Bible says that, you know what? The way is narrow to salvation. It's not broad. It's narrow. That means it's hard to get through there. Matthew was just obedient to the Lord. He had a quite a, a background in the Jewish faith. It's interesting that in the Gospel of Matthew itself, there are more quotes from the Old Testament than all the other Gospels combined. Because that was his background. He was into the New Test- Old Testament. He knew the Old Testament. He quoted from all three sections of the Old Testament. The Jewish law, the prophets, the holy writings. See, Matthew knew the law of God through the Old Testament. And yet, what's interesting to me is that there's no indication that all that knowledge that he had about the Old Testament changed him in any way. He was a tax collector, for goodness sakes. Ripping off his own people. He was a cheat. It just goes to show you that you can know a lot of spiritual, a lot of things intellectually and totally miss the boat on a spiritual level. It's not about knowledge, beloved. It's about what, what are you doing with that knowledge? You know, you can, you can memorize all the books of the Bible and, hey, I encourage you to do that. Memorize all the verses. Hey, that's great. But if that's all you're doing, if there's no connection with your heart, if God hasn't truly saved you, you know, don't think you're going to stand before Jesus one day and say, hey, I read, I, you know, I read the whole Bible. Can I get into heaven? <laughs> Sorry, that doesn't count. And so when Jesus comes along in verse 9 and says to him, follow me, and he arose and followed him instantly. It's amazing. He left his career totally walked away from everything he knew. And it's interesting that the Pharisees and the scribes hated Jesus as much or even more than a tax gatherer. And so what's the first thing Matthew does? It shows that he had a, a burden for the lost. He goes out and he has a big banquet and he invites all his, his friends who are a bunch of prostitutes and tax collectors and he invites them over to the house for dinner and then he invites Jesus into their midst. And he's saying, these guys have sins that need to be forgiven too, Jesus. What an incredible thing. And here are the Pharisees standing outside the home going, man, this guy's the Messiah and he's going to eat with these kind of people? I don't think so. They made a judgment call. The judgment call was wrong. See, the whole point that Matthew had that banquet and Jesus came and and the whole dialogue there that we went over before was Jesus was to call sinners to repentance. That's what he said. And when they asked him, why is he hanging around with all these people? Jesus said, you know what? The, The people who are well don't need a physician, but the people who are sick. And so the whole thread 
Here is the confession of sin, repentance, and forgiveness. And that's what Matthew continues to bring up. And he plops himself right down in the middle of the whole issue. And he says, you know what? I was lost. I needed to confess my sin. I needed to repent of my sin. I needed to follow Christ, and I got forgiveness. And if he can do it for me, he can definitely do it for you. Nobody knew that better than Matthew because he knew what kind of a horrible person he truly was. What kind of people does God use? Does he use people who are just these holy, you know, walk on water kind of people? No. He uses vile, wretched, rotten sinners. He uses the most despicable people in society who are willing to be forgiven. If you're willing to come to him in humility and cry out to him and say, be merciful to me, a sinner. You might say, well, he could maybe use somebody like that, but probably wouldn't use him that much. Well, he used Matthew. He used him right. The opening gospel in the New Testament. See, and it's important to understand here because the whole point of, of Matthew's story, you might say, is that God is in the restoration business. That's what he does. He takes the unqualified, he takes the down and outers, he takes those who don't have a chance in life, and he transforms them. It's nothing they do. It's what God does. That's his business. And Matthew risks a lot to follow Christ, but we see his humility. We see... God working in his life. He never says anything about himself. He doesn't say anything about his talents or his gifts or anything about that. The only thing he wants people to know is that Jesus forgives sin and that if he can forgive me, he can definitely forgive you. I think sometimes that when we, when we look at, at certain individuals or maybe we even feel that about ourselves, well, God couldn't use me or God couldn't save me. Yes, he could. He could and he will. You cry out to him in faith. When you totally and utterly surrender yourself to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, He'll save you. He'll save you. It's not going to turn you into some religious nut. You know, you're not going to, you know, turn into somebody you're not. He uses your personality, He uses who you are, and He'll use you for His kingdom. An incredible way. One writer said this the glorious unconventionality of Jesus Christ. He chooses the most unlikely people. That is so true. He just does. Well, let's look at the second guy this morning. Thomas is his name. What do you think of, quick, when I say Thomas? Doubt, Doubt right? Doubt. This first thing that pops is doubting Thomas, you know. Uh, it's, it's clear when you learn some things about Thomas that he's gotten some bad press. Okay. Uh, Thomas is a better man than you may think. Um, People don't really understand who Thomas was. And so we're going to learn some things together as we we take a deeper look at Thomas himself. Um, The Bible doesn't say a whole lot about him, but he's mentioned three times. First place is over, once again, in the Gospel of John. So turn over to John chapter 11. And we're just going to look at these three brief texts about Thomas. In verse... 14 of John chapter 11, the Lord is up there on the Jordan River and uh, the Lord is out of the city of Jerusalem because they were under pressure there and uh, there's a plot to take his life and everything. Uh, and so they, they left Jerusalem out in these outer parts there. Um, 
and he and his disciples are up by the Jordan River. And in verse 14, it says there that news comes back that Jesus' friend Lazarus is sick and uh, basically has died. And look at what it says in verse 14. This is amazing. And Jesus said to them plainly, after being formed, he said, Lazarus is dead. And then look what he says. And I'm glad. It's probably not. I don't think I've ever talked to somebody when they said, you know, oh, you know, your brother passed away. Well, you know what? My brother's dead and I'm glad. I've never had that response. Okay, but that's what Jesus says here. He says, yeah, he's dead and I'm glad. And then he goes on, he says, for your sakes, I'm glad. I'm glad I wasn't there to spare his life so that there's going to be a reason, there's going to be a miracle here that's going to cause you to believe even more in who I am. And so he says he's dead, and I'm glad for your sakes that I wasn't there because now you're going to see something that will make you believe. And in verse 15 it says at the end there that you may believe, nevertheless, Let us go to him. Let us go to him. Now, you've got to understand the context of what we're talking about here. They're here up by the Jordan. Lazarus is over in Bethany. If you stop and you ask yourself, where's Bethany? Bethany is two miles east of Jerusalem. They're here. Bethany's over here. Jerusalem's right here. What does that mean? They need to go through Jerusalem. (laughs) They just came out of Jerusalem. People are trying to kill them in Jerusalem. All right, that's the scenario. The group of disciples is a little kind of nervous about going back to Jerusalem because people just tried to kill the Lord and his followers there. That's why they left. And they thought they're going to go up to Galilee and see their friends. Now they're going back to Jerusalem, through Jerusalem. And look at what happens here. And Thomas apparently kind of moves into this situation rather quickly. And it says in verse 16, Then Thomas who is called the twin, or Didymus, he has a twin. There's two of them, but there's only one that's called to be an apostle. We don't know if it was a brother or sister, who knows? doesn't say. But here's what he says to his fellow disciples. This is what we know of Thomas's character. Let us also go, and then he says, that we may die with him. I mean, when you stop and you look at this statement... Basically, what Thomas is saying is, you know what? This is a suicide mission. This is what this is. They all knew it. They were all looking at each other, disheartened. They're thinking, we can't do this. We can't go back to Jerusalem. And Thomas speaks up and says, well, let's just go with him and we'll die with him. That's the answer to the, the problem here. Now, there's several things that we can see here about Thomas. First of all, talk about taking initiative. That's exactly what he did, right? Everybody else is scratching their head going, well, gee, you know, we can't, how are we going to go? We can't go back to Jerusalem. They'll kill us. Thomas said, let's go. We'll die with them. That's it. He just takes the initiative. There's also some pessimism here. Jesus didn't say he was going to go and die. Thomas just assumed that. He was convinced that Jesus was going to be killed if they went back to Jerusalem. And if they went, they would die. That's what Thomas assumed. It's very clear to him. So I see pessimism there in his character as well, but I also see courage. 
Because the greatest courage in the world is not the courage of an optimist. An optimist always thinks that everything's going to work out. So for him to say, oh, let's go, to just work out, that's not a big deal. But a pessimist thinks, hey, we're going to die, let's go anyway. That's the kind of courageous heart that I would like in battle with me. So Thomas says, we'll go, we'll die, and that's it. That's what's going to happen. Cut and dry. Figured it all out. I think what Thomas, what we're seeing here with Thomas is that he doesn't want to be without his Lord. He loved his Lord so much that he said, you know what? If you're going to die, I don't want to live. (laughs) It's that simple. He was a man of courage. He was a man of love. He kind of had the mentality, death, yes. Disloyalty, never. I'll never be disloyal to you, Lord, but if you're going to die, I I have to die too. That was his kind of the way he was. Now turn over to John 14. We see another glimpse of Thomas. And the same attitudes come out again. Jesus gives this little message about not letting your heart be troubled and believing in God and he's going to prepare a place for you and I'll come again and receive you unto myself and where, the, there, uh, where I am you'll be also. And Thomas says in verse 5, and Thomas said to him, Lord, wait a minute, we don't know where you are going <laughs> and how can we know the way? See, it's the same thing. Lord... Don't you go somewhere where we can't come. I don't want that to happen. His love for Christ was so strong, he didn't want to be without Jesus. The thought of separation to Thomas was just something that sent him over the edge. And he's pessimistic in a way. He says, well, you know what, even if you do go somewhere and tell us, we'll probably never find the place. (laughs) So we're going to be lost. Without you. It's this bleak, negative, bewildered heart. You know, there's some people that are that way. They're just always on the down and out. Everything's always negative. That's kind of how Thomas was. And Jesus tells Thomas, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. What's he saying? He's saying, hey, Thomas, I'll take you. I'll take you up there. Don't worry about it. I'm the way. You don't have to fear. I'm not going to a place and and leave you by yourself. And so once again, the Lord kind of has to step in and reassure Thomas. Now turn over to John 20. We see another instance, the only other instance really where Thomas is mentioned. At this point, Jesus died. And you know what Thomas did? You know what happened to Thomas? He got depressed. He got real depressed. He got so depressed, he just basically went out by himself and just hung with himself. All his fears came true. The fact that Jesus said he was going somewhere and that he'd come back, well, that didn't happen. The fact that Jesus was going to go through Jerusalem and they were going to die, well, that didn't happen. Well, now Jesus is dead. Thomas is still alive. He doesn't know what to do. He's panicking. And he becomes so shattered and so depressed He didn't even want to be around people. That's what depression does to people. It isolates them. In verse 24, it says, Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, wasn't with them when Jesus came. 
Where was he? He was out licking his wounds somewhere. Woe is me. Everything came true. Verse 25 says there the other disciple, maybe John, we don't know who it was, said to him, hey, we've seen the Lord, Thomas. And you weren't there. Too bad. You didn't show up. You're too depressed. You ever try to talk to somebody who's depressed? Tough. Difficult. It's very difficult. And so Thomas says, you know what? Except I see his hands, the print, in his hands the print of the nails, and except I put my finger into, into, uh, into the print on the nails and my hand into his side, I will not believe. He's a pessimist. I've got to see it to believe it. That's what he says. What's interesting is people called Thomas doubting Thomas, but really all the disciples were that way, if you stop and think about it. All of them just didn't believe that Jesus rose from the dead. None of the disciples believed until they saw Jesus. I mean, it's not easy to think that somebody would raise from the dead. That's just not something that happens every day. Remember on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24, two of the disciples were walking with the Lord. And they didn't believe that it was him. Until they saw, we opened their eyes. So don't make Thomas out to be the only doubter. They all doubted. They all needed to see. So the Lord, by the way, in case you don't know, the Lord doesn't mind people wanting to be sure about their faith. There's nothing wrong with going before the Lord and saying, hey, I'm unsure about my faith. Show me. Make it real to me. There's nothing wrong with that at all. In verse 26, look at what happens. John 20. In eight days, and after eight days, his disciples were again inside. This time, Thomas must have got over his depression thing. He was with them. And it says, Jesus came, the doors being shut. That's kind of cool. He just walked right through the door. Materialized himself. Rearranged his molecular structure to be able to walk right through a door. Amazing. And he stood in the midst and he said, peace to you. That's a pretty good statement to make, being that they were under, in the situation they were in. (laughs) They didn't know what was going to happen next. So he didn't want to send them over the edge. So, hey, peace be with you. And then he turns right directly to Thomas. And he says, you know what, Thomas, reach your finger here. Look at my hands. Reach your hand here. And put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. The Bible doesn't say that Thomas actually did it. it. Doesn't say he put his hand in his side. It doesn't say that. Probably didn't do it. Probably just Christ being there was enough for him to believe. And then doubting Thomas, the guy that gets all this bad press, press all these years. <laughs> Look at what he says. He makes one of the most dramatic statements about Christ. He answered and said unto him, My Lord and my God. He affirmed the Lordship of Jesus Christ. He affirmed that he was God. He wanted it so bad, Jesus was back, and he said, you know what, Thomas, 
Because you've seen me, you believe. And you're not alone. The rest are basically in the same camp with you. And then he says this, which is interesting. Blessed are they that have not seen and yet believed. You know who that is? That's us. I don't know about you, but I've never seen the risen Lord face to face. One day I will, but I haven't seen it yet. And yet the Bible says that we are blessed because we believe and yet we haven't seen So Thomas was this melancholy, moody, pessimistic person. But when he saw the Lord Jesus Christ, he gave the greatest testimony ever. In one little statement, my Lord, my God, he literally destroys every lie that's ever been told about Christ in the history of man. The Mormons are funny when they come to this phrase. What they say, because they don't believe Jesus was God, what they say is that Thomas answered and said unto him, he looked at Christ and he said, my Lord. And then he looked up to heaven and said, my God. That's their answer to this testament of Christ's deity, which it's not there and it doesn't make any sense that he would do that. But it's a monumental statement. And Thomas, the doubter, just like all the other disciples were, he was able to make that statement. Jesus wants us to be sure of our faith. Um, And you know what? The way that we can be sure, one of the ways it helps us to be sure in our faith is to surround ourselves with believers. To be part of a fellowship that's that's active, that's, that's able to come together outside of Sundays. I mean, it doesn't mean that Christ can't meet you, you know, at home in your prayer closet. That's fine. Okay, but there's something to be said when the body of Christ comes together. That's why here we invite you to be part of a grace care group Monday or I mean Wednesday or Friday. We invite you to come out to be part of a smaller group than what we can do here on Sunday. We believe it's a biblical mandate. In in 1 Thessalonians 5.11, it says that we are to encourage and build up one another in the body of Christ. How are you going to do that on a Sunday morning? Not going to happen. It's a different dynamic. Hebrews 10.25 says, Don't neglect us meeting together as the habit of some, but encourage one another. And all the more if you see the day drawing near. I mean, I don't know if you've read the news lately, but the day's drawing near, beloved. It's getting closer and closer and closer. Every time I read the news anymore, I don't get discouraged. I get encouraged. It's like, man, this is just this is like reading the Bible. This stuff's just coming true. There's going to come a day when Christ comes back. The church will be taken out of here. It's going to be incredible. That's Thomas. He, he, you can see the difference when he was around the disciples. And when he drew away, he pulled away because of his depression, whatever it was that led him to do that. We need to be part of a... of a a small group, of a body that cares and exhorts one another. That's what we're called to do. We don't know much about how Thomas was ended, his life was ended. the, The tradition says that he preached as far as India, some traditions say. One tradition says that he died in a very special way. They took a spear and they rammed it through him, which is kind of interesting being that he said that he would have to put his hand in the side of Christ to believe That's just all kind of folklore, history. We don't know exactly what happened. But what kind of people does God use? He uses people like Matthew. He uses people like 
Thomas. And now we come to the third group, James, the son of Alphaeus. And this is rather quick because this guy would never make who's who, okay? <clears throat> He'd never be on a talk show. Who is this guy? James, the son of Alphaeus. You know what the Bible says about him? Nada. Nothing. Zippo. So that's basically, but I have a couple things I want to share before we close. So, I mean, he had a famous name, James. Um, there was James, the son of Zeb Zebedee, that we already looked at. He was one of the sons of thunder. There was James, the brother of our Lord, and there was James, the son of Alphaeus. He never wrote anything. He never said anything. He never asked anything. He never did anything recorded in the Bible. In fact, over in Mark, if you look at Mark 15.40, it gives a description of this guy, James. This is about all we have other than him being listed in the, in the other lists. James 15.40 Or I mean, excuse me, James, 15, Mark 1540, Mark 1540, it says that he's called James the Micros, okay, James the Less, James the Smaller, um, is that the right, that's not the right reference, is it? Yeah, the mother of James the Less, okay. Um, it, it's kind of interesting because who was Big James? Big James was James the Son of Thunder, and here we have little James. Micros basically meant small in stature. It could also mean young in age. It could also mean least in influence. And it probably meant all three concerning this guy. He was just a small little fella. Okay? Not a lot of influence. And uh, just not a lot to, to tell about him. But it's interesting to me that he was a small little guy, and yet God did call him to be an apostle. He did use them. We just may not have recorded what was being used. It's encouraging to me because God doesn't use necessarily just the superstars <laughs> like Peter or John. Sometimes you hear people say, I think somebody was talking about that this morning, I don't know, but uh, you hear people say, gee, I just wish so-and-so would become a Christian because if they became a Christian, you know, some movie stars, some boy, think of the influence. Oh, the kingdom of God. You know what? That doesn't impress God. That's, that's, it's, it's kind of a silly statement. You know, and, and sometimes when we stop and we think about that, um, you know, God doesn't depend on that. And, and just because someone has that kind of fame or whatever, that's not going to advance the kingdom of God any more than you or I could. And so James, the son of Alphaeus, he's going to sit on the throne reigning over the tribes of Israel just like the other uh, 12 there. What do we know about him? We don't know nothing. All we know that somehow God used him in a miraculous way. Some believe that maybe he was the brother of Matthew because they both were from Levi, um, the son of Alphaeus. So maybe he was Matthew's brother. Maybe he was a cousin of the Lord himself. We don't know. He didn't say anything. There's no, nothing really recorded about him. But I bring that up because it shows us, it shows us very clearly 
that when we look at the apostles, okay, the apostles demonstrate to us that it's it's not about the worker themselves. It's not about the person themselves. It's about the kingdom work. It's never about the worker. And sometimes I think we get that wrong today in our churches. I mean, it was Paul who said, so what is Apollos? What is Paul? Remember? It is God that gives the increase, 1 Corinthians 3. The worker is nothing. So the New Testament never even focuses on these guys. This last group is pretty much empty except for Judas of Iscariot, who, who basically uh, we're going to look at him next week. But there's not a lot about these guys, and yet they're no less important than the other, the other apostles. And I think that it's important for us to see that because sometimes we make a lot about somebody's gifts or somebody's talents or whatever it is. And to God, that's, that's a side issue. He just wants a heart that's yielded to him. Beloved, trust me, if he can use Balaam's ass to, 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 to take forth his, you know, his work in the Old Testament, he can surely use you or I if we yield to him. The Bible says he can even make the rocks cry out if he has to. See, the human instrument is not the issue. And yet, somehow in churches today, that has become the issue. Oh, this person is so gifted. This person so intellectual. Oh, you should know this person preach or this person teach or, oh, this guy is such a soul. And it's all focusing on an individual. And God's saying, that's not right. You need to focus on me. I need to get the glory. And I'm not saying those people are even asking for the glory. That's, they're probably not even the problem. It's people that are, that are looking at them. And it's very easy to happen today in, in their society and we put people on pedestals. Don't ever do that. The Bible doesn't do that. The focus is always on and should always be on Christ. You know, people come and go. I mean, you know, we're not we're not assured of, of tomorrow. I mean, I could die tonight in my sleep. You know, does that mean the doors of the church close now? I could do something stupid. I could sin, I could disqualify myself from ministry. Does that mean no? It doesn't, you know. God's work goes on. It's not about an individual. Never has been and never should be. Maybe you heard the story of the guy who painted the painting of the Last Supper. He called his friend and worked on it real hard. He said, I want you to look at it. I'm finished with it, and I want you to evaluate it. And his friend looked over the painting a little bit and he said, I want you to tell you, I'll tell you what, you know, those cups that you painted on that table are incredible. I've never seen cups like that before. And the painter looked at him and said, okay. He went over and got his paintbrush and his paint, and he started painting over all the cups. And his friend said, what are you doing? He said, I, I don't want the cups to be the focus. You're supposed to see Christ. You're not supposed to be focusing on the cups. I failed. See, it's a wonderful thing to be a vessel, to be used for God's use. But that's not where the focus should be. The focus should always, should always reside with Christ. We're a personality-oriented society. We study the methods and the means of men rather than experiencing the power of God a lot of times. 
I mean, you can see that in the church now for sure. I mean, there's, you, you can go on the Internet and, you know, type in church growth. I mean, there's stuff that comes up that's just kind of off the wall. We guarantee you, you'll have this many people if you buy this program or you do this or you do that. Well, here's James, son of Alphaeus, this little obscure fellow. We don't know anything about him, and yet God obviously used him. We see Matthew and Thomas and how he used them. You know what? I'm just here to tell you that he can use you. He can use you in an incredible way if you'll just yield your life to him. You'll come before him in humility and say, God, you know, I know what it, I don't have what it takes, but you know what? I just want to be used by you in whatever way. I guarantee you he'll answer that prayer. Let's close in a word of prayer for this morning. Father, we pray that for each individual here, Lord, that they would understand that the kind of people that God uses is not some superstar. It's not some spiritual giant. It's people like the people in this room. It's people like myself who basically just want to serve you. Really, to be honest, I mean, we're... We're blown away. You even saved us in the first place. There's nothing good in us. There's no reason you need us to be saved. And so, Lord, we just thank you for our salvation. We thank you that we have a privilege of serving you in whatever way we do. And, Lord, I pray that we would never put the focus on individuals, but, Lord, that we would focus on one individual, that being your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And, Lord, that we would always exalt and lift him up in our midst. Father, if there's any here that have yet to put their faith or trust in you, I pray that you would open their heart to the truth, that you would take away the blinders that are on their eyes, that they would, as Thomas confessed, look at you and say, my Lord and my God, that their life would be transformed by the power of Christ in their life. Father, we thank you and we praise you this morning. Pray that you would continue to do your work throughout this week. And, uh, just allow us to live lives that are glorifying and honoring to you. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.